Industry Under Pressure. Innovation in its finest hour. This is the Oil & Gas Technology Podcast, where sharp minds reveal the brilliance and sheer determination turning great ideas into new realities. Hear about how it happens in real life with your host, Michael O'Sullivan. The views of the host are expressly his own and should not be construed as the views of any other corporation, consortium, governing body, or interplanetary federation. Welcome back, everyone, to another electrifying episode of the Oil & Gas Tech Podcast, brought to you by the good people at Cognite, right here on the Oil & Gas Global Network. We do love our sponsors here at OGGM because without them, there is no us. And that is the truth. There is really no us without our sponsors, and you would have nowhere to go for all this fantastic content. So thank goodness for people like Cognite. And if you're not familiar with Cognite, Here's a little message, uh, something that they want you to know about them. Imagine your company fully digitalized, transformed, and sustainable. Cognite helps you make data do more for faster, safer, more sustainable industrial operations. And of course, you can learn more at Cognite.com. I do have a fantastic guest joining today. We're going to talk about a very popular topic in the world today. Uh, That would be fracking. However, before we get to the guest, uh, I do want to mention a couple of things. The first is, i got to remind everybody to leave us a review. Go to your podcast platform, do the thing where you go in, you put the review, you say how fantastic we are. Uh, it doesn't matter what, what podcast platform you listen to. I think they all let you leave reviews, or I think they all let you leave reviews. Anyway, find one that does, and, uh, and, 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 and give us a review for this show, for any of the OGGN shows. Um, and I did say leave a fantastic review, but that actually isn't necessary. You can also, you can really leave any kind of review that you want, as long as it is truthful and heartfelt. And if you leave us a uh, less than great review then make sure that you tell us what you think that we ought to be doing differently because we really do want to know. We don't want to do this if you're not if it's not good for you. So tell us what you think we should do differently. That is how we learn and how we get better. Um, but if you like it, then say that you like it because that's how other people are going to find out and all your friends will know that this is worth their time. So please leave us a review. I do have a little uh, introductory story today uh, before we get to our guest. Um, since we're going to be talking about fracking, um, and uh, it's been a little while since I've been to the to, since I've gone to the books, you know, my I've got these books that I like, and so I'm I'm pulling out this one today, uh, the one that is titled "Groundbreakers: The Story of Oilfield Technology and the People Who Made It Happen." This one is written by uh, by a couple of guys, Mark Mao and Henry Edmondson. I, I've talked about them on the show before in this book, so uh, so maybe you've heard maybe you've you've heard me. Uh, go on about uh, what an impressive piece of work this is. But today, and by the way, this is an actual, some of you may not be familiar with this format any, anymore, but this is an actual book that has pieces of paper with words printed on it. And uh, it's and it's pretty sizable too. I mean, you can, this is, this is a hefty, a hefty volume, but I'm going to, I'm going to try to get to my, where I got my little sticky note here. Um, and yes, on page 223, we are talking, uh, well, we're not talking, but the book is uh, talking about advancing hydraulic fracturing. And uh, the interesting thing to note here is that um, it, it's referencing a point in time where it says that uh, more than 100,000 well fracturing operations had been performed worldwide. Now, if you'd like to take a guess at what year that is referencing, what year what, had there been already more than 100,000 well fracturing operations. I'll just I'll just pause for a minute for you to write down your answer. Okay? Now, if you guessed 1955, then you would be correct. Of course, 1955 is also an important junction point in the space-time continuum, but uh, but it is by by that point in time. Um, so fracking didn't just get invented in the last 20 years. It, it it became commercial and and scalable in the last 20 years, but but the technology was around way back then. So, um, but there was a theory at the time, there was a hypothesis that the fractures created were predominantly horizontal. Uh, So that theory was pretty well accepted uh, until it wasn't. And then uh, some various oil company, now I'm paraphrasing here because I don't want to read you the whole thing, but but there were some some researchers uh, that were skeptical. 
And so uh, it was actually the Shell Oil Company that asked uh, somebody, uh, somebody named Marion King Hubbard, who was apparently an intellectual star at the time, to make a critical review. This is in 1955, um, because it was really important to know whether the, uh, the fractures were, were horizontal or vertical. And it is then that the horizontal fracture hypothesis would collapse under its own weight. So you can see, you can see what happened. Uh, it turns out it's not horizontal. But, but the interesting part is how, um, how he, and he, and he worked with a friend named David Willis. And here's how they did it. This is the part I really wanted you to hear. So to substantiate their theory, these two, uh, this is the experiment that they performed. They took a two-gallon flexible plastic bottle and filled it with gelatin. While it was still liquid, they inserted a glass tube to stimulate a well. And when the gelatin solidified, they withdrew the tube partway to simulate both a cased and open hole environment. In the first experiment, they simulated a horizontal least stress by squeezing the bottle between two clamped boards. In the second experiment, they simulated a vertical least stress by stretching the bottle vertically. For each stress condition, they fractured the gelatin by injecting a slurry of gypsum plaster. If you're not familiar with that, it probably you can probably scratch it off your walls in your house. So, uh, so they, in they injected this gypsum, uh, which solidified into a permanent record of the resulting fracture geometry. When the least stress was horizontal, the fracture surface oriented vertically, and horizontally if the least stress was vertical. So I know you're trying to follow along with this at home, but uh, here's the big... Uh, here is the big climax. They concluded in their classic 1957 paper entitled Mechanics of Hydraulic Fracturing that fractures are approximately perpendicular to the axis of least stress. So there you have it, folks. Uh, hydraulic fracturing experiments that you can do at home in your very own kitchen. And that brings us around to our guest today. Mr. Brett Chell joining us from sunny, warm Calgary, Alberta. He is the CEO of a really, uh, really cool company called Cold Bore, Cold Bore Technology. I say a really cool company. I just started learning about it. Um, it looks cool. So, Brett, anyway, thanks for uh, making time today. <laughs> My pleasure, man. That's the best intro I think I've ever got. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, it, so it is. So, what is the weather? So, I always, I'm in Houston, and people are in other places a lot of times. So, we always have to start out with the weather comparison. So, right. so today in Houston, I'm like, you could go swimming. It's like sunny, and it's in the 80s. I, I don't know whatever that is in in your language. That's like high 20s or something, right? So, what's it? Yeah. What's it's got to be cooler than that. I, I think you can, you can definitely swim here. It just depends how brave you are. Yeah. <laughs> like, do you have to break the ice first before you swim? Yeah, probably. Yeah, there's still a little bit of ice left for sure. Yeah. 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 It's 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 not it's not been that nice. I don't know. Are we even allowed to go outside up here? If you guys have been watching, what's going on? <laughs> oh yeah, our, yeah, you're yeah, crazy. Yeah. Government is uh, going nuts and locking. Yeah, out. like uh, well, you know, uh, anything worth doing is worth doing four times, I guess. So yeah, um, like yeah, like moving to Texas. so so yeah we well we so we have a different podcast for that topic but um today today we're talking uh this is the the oil and gas tech show and so we're going to talk oil and gas tech but let's start before we do that let's start about a little bit um um and i know you've done podcasts before so you you, i can i'll I'll just try to throw something at you but but let's start with uh your background like what like i know you have kind of an interesting story so who are you and what have you been doing? Yeah, sure. So I've got roughly 20 years oil and gas experience um, with a few breaks in the middle to just do straight technology companies, found those and, and kind of build those out. And then we exited those. Um, so I, when I left high school in 2000, I graduated. Um, I uh, went to an art school here in Canada for six months, uh, Emily Carr. And I thought I was going to, I still am an artist. I do stuff on the side. Um, but back then I thought this is what I was going to pursue full time. Did that for about six months. And then all my friends were making oil rig money back in the early 2000s. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> artists was, make almost that much, right? 
it's yeah, it's close. Two, or, yeah. two or three of them yeah <laughs> together yeah. two or three of them do make a lot of money that's about it so i i think i uh you know i spent enough time messing around and then just decided i was going to go do this and uh, i had a brother-in-law that worked on the drilling rigs so that was it we just one day just picked up and moved and i spent uh, supposed to be one year classic story one year on the drilling sure. rigs sure. yeah just get that money and then get out and go back to school uh Turns out school's not for me, um, and I ended up spending six or seven years out in the field. Mm-hmm. And um, first four were just straight drilling, so at least hand up to driller, that whole story. A uh, bunch right. of different rigs, coil tubing, traditional, uh, top drive rigs. Um, and then got into technology development. So I joined a company, second guy at a company called Extreme Coil Drilling uh, in the early 2000s. And um, right. that was when coil rigs were going to be the next solution for drilling. Sure, sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, then they just ended up uh, being not feasible for a whole bunch of reasons, but it was good because we right. built those rigs and um, moved them into Saudi. And they, they just recently got acquired by SLB uh, over there. And after that, in 2010, I went and joined a, a group of entrepreneurs that built technology companies, startups. And the idea there was that I had had my own companies before and I wanted to uh, start my own again, but legitimate ones where you would have to raise millions and have <laughs> shareholders and boards. So joining okay. those guys, they, t- they taught me that financial narratives, how to build them, when to get PE, when to do VC. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. So, and that's when you found out that working on the rig was actually a lot easier, probably. <laughs> yeah. A lot less stressful. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 But it's yeah. an interesting, so it's a cool thing though, because not a whole lot of people, I mean, I've worked, um, you know, over the last several years with various, um, you know, tech companies that are either that are either working exclusively in oil and gas or trying to sell into oil and gas. Not too many of them have somebody who has a background like that, where you could say, like, I was actually out there doing all those things. So that's um, that uh, I, I, I imagine it's a, it's a huge advantage. It also had once you started working with these the folks in this legitimate company as uh as you mentioned there had to be some eye rolling on your part right like like um because people always imagine that they know how things go out there in in operations and Mm. they 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 typically don't um you know so that's uh it had to be an interesting perspective for you yes two i think two things really stick out of my mind when you say something like that um one is that pushing new technology into oil and gas takes years and years of just being persistent in boardrooms and uh, yeah, really yeah, developing, yeah. especially something brand new like what we're doing that never existed. You have to develop, uh, fully develop the idea and conceptualize it and then commercialize it. And it takes patience and patience on the operator's part, patience on the service company's part. And you just have to stick it out and keep going at it. And yeah. the fact that I had spent that time in the field, they, the guys in the boardrooms that you end up with, that if you're seeing them your second and third time, they, they can sniff that out right away. And, um, yeah. and they respect it. And so I think that they will have you back in where if you do, if you go in there they, and you don't have that experience, they also can sniff that out right away. And, yeah, um, sure. yeah, and they have a lot less patience for that. You have to have something real magical and real fast uh, if yeah. you don't have any oil field experience. But they will validate your parking as they show you the door. So it's not, <laughs> yeah. a, total, it's not a total loss. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah. yeah. So that 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 is um, – but you mentioned something in there. Um, we'll get back to the rest of the story in a second. But you, you also yeah. mentioned something about um, – uh, it takes years and years. And I've, I know I've experienced that. I have friends who've experienced that, but there's also like this, uh, you know, and it always, it, that always comes about when you, when, you know, somebody, especially if there's a tech company that has already been successful in some other industries and now they got a sales team and they're focusing on oil and gas and they expect, you know, very rapid pipeline development and they want to see like deals closing in three months. And, you know, and if, and if you can even just like get, um, if you can even get a deal, crafted in the first year you know then you're probably Mm -hmm. doing pretty well but i think there's there's something a little bit different happening in the industry now too because back it it used to be that there was also a lot of it took years and years but there was a high tolerance on the part of the buyers the the operators or even the big service companies 
where they understood that they were investing in these these kind of long-term projects and the ROI was going to come eventually. And and that's not so much anymore, right? Like now you have to be able to get in there and people are, you know, talking about with new tech projects, um, people are talking about wanting to see, you know, time to value in like 60 days, 90 days, certainly yeah. the first few months. So how, how do you see that, um, the, the, the conflicting, so there's two different like, cult, there's like a culture conflict there. There's an industry where it takes forever to move things along, but now we want to see, we want to see ROI very quickly because we don't have the tolerance for a five-year project. Do you see that happening? No, that very, very astute observation and extremely correct. Um, it, it, there was a little more patience for it three, four, four and a half, five years ago. And then, right. it, then the world changed and that went away overnight. And right, then there was right. no, there was no taller or no appetite for it at all because yeah. everyone was in shock and awe. They're just getting their house together um, yep. for about a year. And then after that, then it became 30, 60 days. You better prove it. You got to show some real value. You got to have an understandable value proposition. Um, and I think again, coming back to that, the mix of my background with field experience and, um, and finance experience is that that was really the only way to get to bridge those two culture gaps that you were talking about is, yeah, is that yeah, okay, you, sure. you have to go in and talk to the guys from your field experience level, get all, especially with us. I think that's where we ended up in a completely different product that the market had never seen because we came at it from a field guy's perspective of we need to solve mm -hmm. this problem. Luckily we had background experience in raising money with technology companies. So when we right. weren't getting paid to do this because we were a lot longer than 60 day time to value, Right? It was going to take a year or two to fully flush out a new platform for automation. Uh, we we self-funded by raising money. And so yeah. we went out on that tech style financial narrative creation and then raising through PE and, and kind of bootstrapping and then eventually VC stuff uh, and put 10 or 15 million bucks of our own money into this to get it to where it is today. We're now time to value is 30 days and you have a, you know, a whole platform that plugs everyone into autonomy, which is you know, it's kind of beyond <laughs> yeah. belief to some of these operators now, but it's, that's yeah, how it came yeah. about. Very cool. So, yeah. So, um, interesting. Yeah. So that gets us back to, um, the stressful, uh, world of raising money in a legitimate company. But, um, so, so, to, so, uh, we, I think we were just about, so in your story, we were just about to the part where you, you get to where, uh, you, you're getting close to what you're doing now, which you've already hinted at a little bit, but, um, um, so how did you, how did, so well, what's the rest of the story? I forget where we left off actually. Yeah, no, so it was right, right when I was coming in and I wanted to build my own business. So I joined the tech entrepreneurs. They had offices here and in California and a group of guys that had built multi hundred million dollar, even billion dollar companies that were just great mentors. And I mm -hmm. uh, did the classic, you know, went to work for them at 30 years old for 40,000 bucks a year for three years. And uh, yeah. that was a huge punch to the ego, but it was something yep. that I had to do. And I got to work with these guys and, and day to day, day in and day out. And I worked on projects with them where we raised a couple hundred million dollars to fly Volkswagen bus size video cameras on Russian rockets up to the ISS and install them on it. Right. Okay. So simple stuff. So yeah. Yeah. Just little yeah. things. Little things. Yeah. Stuff that everybody gets exposed to. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so, but then after that, what did you do? What did you do? Yeah. So, do, I did a couple of those projects and we exited those, but that was the, you know, you get to see real big scale. You get to see how people think and in different ways to go a lot bigger than what you typically would have in your sure, environment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, so got out of those and then just started Cold War. And then also was a, one of four founders in, in Raptor Rig, which we'll leave out of this. But Cold War, I've ran day to day ever since. And um, now we're here. Right. So, so we want to make sure we say it clearly that it's Cold War, Cold War technology, not Cold War technology, because yeah. that would be a completely different, that would be a completely different thing. So, yeah. um, so Cold War, uh, all right. So before we get into that, um, I know I did a little bit of homework and I know that you're, uh, you got something to do with fracking. You guys are, you're bringing really uh, cool. We'll, we'll talk about automation and all of that and fracking, but um, yeah. I can't resist uh, making a quick little detour to just, let's talk about fracking in general. Cause you have a perspective that isn't, so you're not the operator, but you're the person, but you've, you've been in that world. And now you're the person who's trying to bring, you know, better ways uh, of, of working into uh, the fracking world fracking world is you know like not the most popular thing with a lot of people mm -hmm. right now so yeah. um but but we know that it's really um um 
well, I, well, I have a lot of my own, my own thoughts, but what's, so what's your perspective on that? How, how much of all of this bad press is just misconception? We need, we just need to educate people on what fracking really is and how it works and how, and, and, and how much of that is really like, Hey, there's really some opportunity here to do this a lot better and make it a lot more acceptable. Yeah. I think you kind of hit it there. So there's two things to do with that question. One is that there's, it's, it is, it's not ideal. We'd love to have a perpetual energy machine that was perfectly clean. Right. And we could just get energy for free, but we can't do that. Okay, right. And we need, we need to remain competitive, right. In a global scale. And right now that's our by and far our main source of energy. And we use oil and gas and natural gas for all kinds of things in our life. And to remain competitive on a global scale, we have to be able to frack these wells. Otherwise right. we're going to get run over. And that has far more implications than I think people like to admit um, from quality of life, just in general. And the other countries aren't going to slow down. So our, sure. you know, the net net environmental impact won't be any different. Now right. what we can do, because uh, I am one of those guys that I believe in sustainable uh, growth mm-hmm. and sustainable sure. practices and, and transition times and everything like that um, is that, I, th- I think there's a really big opportunity like fracking isn't that old. I don't think a lot of people know that we've really only been fracking at scale for 10, 15 years. Right. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. Um, I mean, uh, it's it, the history of it goes back much further than that, but, but, but being able to do it, um, to operationalize it and make it uh, at scale and, and fit the economics. Right. That's, that's really, but, but it was also, right. it was also a big, uh, um, you know, uh, the U.S. energy independence, you know, and which, of course, I know you're not. I mean, so let's just say North American energy independence. Yeah. yeah. And th- that was that was a big uh, I mean, that that had that was a big uh, swing factor in that. Right. Over those last 10 to 15, 20 years. Absolutely. Yeah. And and we are primarily American company. We're domiciled in Delaware. So we are fully American. Wow. Yep. They're going to um, run out of space in Delaware soon. They're not going to be able to put any more. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's not a very big, it's not a very big state. It's like, it's like the size of Houston. Yeah. Friendly, friendly to us entrepreneurs tax wise. Yes. Yeah. I, yep. Yep. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but I mean, so I think the, the net net of it is that there's, it was a fairly nascent, um, technology and operation. And I would agree that in the early days it was not efficient. It's like nothing was when it first started. Right. Look at a car from the seventies or the sixties. Uh, they're just horrendous on fuel and sure, oil and everything sure. like that. And now they're way more efficient. I think that same right. process can now be taken place with fracking. We can maintain our place and, uh, and standard of living and, uh, you know, our economic position in this kind of fragile world right now, which I think we need to pay more attention to than a lot of people do. And, but we can do it in a responsible way. And so, uh, a lot of people are working on the downhole aspects of fracking mm-hmm. and making that, mm-hmm. you know, less water, um, less produced water, more recycled, less chemicals, all that stuff, which is great. Um, but there was a big hole in the market on the surface and that's where we live. So fracking is a fairly complicated operation. It takes a small city out there to get it done. Um, yep. And there's a lot of people on the surface and a and multitude of different companies. And to date, none of them were really connected in a meaningful way. They were kind of running their own thing and talking on radios and taking turns um, in a fairly complicated stepped operation where they all take multiple turns a day. And so right. in that sense, it was actually, it actually is pretty inefficient. And um, so yeah, where, well, yeah. Yeah. So that's where we focus with SmartPad and our automation and uh, fully autonomous frack. And I think there's a real step change in efficiency that can come from this and greenhouse gas reduction and diesel fuel reduction and usage and just total time on pad. Um, so it's a, it's a win-win cost reduction, so, safety improvement and greenhouse gas reduction. Yeah. So that was what I was going to ask you is how does, I mean, so you mentioned the downhole stuff and it's kind of obvious to the casual observer how that sort of helps it be a cleaner, less disruptive operation. But yeah. um, just, uh, but but on the surface, just smoothing out the process, right? Okay, so yeah, so it's very inefficient. You got people talking on radios and taking turns and whatever, and we can see how maybe that's not good for the economics of of the operator, the drilling company, or what have you. Um, yeah. But 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 it's not. I don't think it's obvious to uh, so somebody who's not really familiar with it. Like, how does it make it like better for the world? Um, 
to uh, to make to have a smoother, fancier, you know, automated operation. There, and you mentioned a couple of things, right? You mentioned, uh, you know, uh, less uh, less less uh, diesel consumption, less time on the pad. But like, is all of that really? Does it really? Does that kind of stuff really move the needle in terms of making this uh, a much more uh, world friendly type of operation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, significantly. And so, so here's a, here's a way to quantify it. We, I think just from a really high level, we have to understand the, the, the uh, mechanics of what's called a zipper frack, which is the primary mm-hmm. frack on these big pads. And so a zipper right. frack means that of these six companies, there's a multitude of wells on a pad, two, four, six, eight, and they'll all be performing a part of the frack on each well. And when they're finished that part, they'll switch and do that same action on the next well and vice versa. And they might have a hundred stages to do that. So throughout right. the course of a day, they might switch wells. You know, they'll, they'll all switch wells a multitude of times, tripping over each other. And so yeah, yeah. that that action of changing between operations happens a lot. Like mm-hmm. take a percentage of whatever day it is, and they're so variable, I don't want to put a number on it, but it's a lot. And so right. when you are slow at changing between those operations, uh, you're wasting time, you're wasting fuel, you're wasting personnel, like everything is out there running, no matter what. And when you introduce automation, and what our SmartPad does is has a control system that sits between all these companies, and is kind of the missing piece, and it connects their control systems, so that now we have bi-directional communication between all the computers, and we kind of eliminate the people on the radios. And that means that when one operation is ramping down on one of the other service companies, this service company computer is picking that up immediately and switching and autonomously moving the equipment physically, the valve, the valve positioning and all the pumps ramping up and down and moving to the next one, much more like a Toyota assembly line. Okay. So let's get this in the right, let's get the right visual for the folks who aren't familiar with this. When you talk about moving from one to the next, um, are you, are you talking about actually moving like, like whole pieces of equipment that are physically rotating around the pad? Or are you talking about moving the operation in terms of adjusting the stuff that's already there? Yeah. Just moving, uh, where you're pumping. So valve control and pumps and, and fluid control. So they just, it's like opening the tap into one well, closing it, moving it to the next one. Right. So you're not actually, you're not actually like lifting up this pump from this spot and moving it no, to no. the next spot. Right, right. Okay. So I, yeah. I was pretty sure that's what you meant, but, but, um, um, yeah, so, so each of the different setups at, and, and I'm only, <laughs> this is, I'm only, so not everybody has, so we have a, we have a very a broad audience that listens to the, to the show and, and not everybody is familiar with every discipline. And this is one where, um, the uh i think there's there isn't as much uh, of a clear understanding as to what's going on so i think it's really helpful for people to, to get a good picture of you've got this 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 contraption right sitting kind of at at each hole on the pad and yeah. and it has and it has the pumps and the valves and everything and and it's able of to perform all the various operations that you're switching right um yeah. so uh so now um so, so that's so that's the part that you're you're ironing you're ironing that out and and making it faster, right? Yeah, and there's there's even more companies involved in more operations, but just to keep it simple, I mean, it's sure, the, sure, the sure. basis of it is the one company owns all the valves that you're pumping through, another company owns all the pumps that's pumping, and so when they pump down one, they finish, and then they'll get on a radio and say, okay, we're done, and then yep, when yep. they're then the guy will go move the valves manually, and if he's busy, maybe he won't for a minute or two or three. And then you waste 10 minutes on a well switch or, and then, okay, they do it. And now they pump down the next one and he radios back with us. We just connect the control system. So when they see the pump rate falling, the wellheads have an autonomous control system from the wellhead company. Now it just switches automatically. So when you go up through the course of one of these pads, it might take 30 days to complete all of this work. We mm-hmm. can take three, four, five days off some of these pads. And so, yeah, that's huge. That's significant. Huge. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and the thing is, and now it doesn't matter that all the pumps are owned by uh, one company and all the, you know, that it, 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 it doesn't really like it, you can have, cause, and I'm thinking about, so I've ha- I have a friend at, um, at one of the big uh, service companies and one of the things that he, and that he's talked about is how 
you go out there and you look at, at these setups and he calls it a, it's kind of like a Frankenstein, right? You got all this yep. different equipment from all these different suppliers, all these different service companies. And, um, and so what you're kind of getting at here is apart from just the engineering, uh, difficulties that that introduces by having all these different vendors provide there's that it actually creates operational um like it clogs up the works operationally because it's not just i bought the parts from different vendors like with a car you could put a car together with parts from a whole bunch of different people but there's still just one person driving the car right but that's not the case here you have all these different people operating it so 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 you're bringing automation into that um and so so what happens what does it look like so that's the before. What is what does the after look like once somebody has has brought your stuff in and, and, and got it operating? Yeah. So after and and quite frankly, actually, automation is a big piece of it. Um, but the let's say there's six service companies out there that we're going to connect so that we remove manual uh, communication and automate that process. Right. That's big. That will re, that will dramatically increase safety. It reduces infrastructure. You don't need as many people on location. Um, it automates the process so it speeds it up, makes it more efficient, and you get visibility into all those services in one dashboard, which also speeds up your ability to replicate any of your best practices that you're seeing over and over and over. But and one, I would say an equal cost benefit to these oil and gas mm-hmm. companies and the service companies is that right now, the way that they're independently operating, they're also doing that with their data capture. So yeah, you have yeah. this $20 million operation and you have six companies out there. Those six companies are generating one sixth of a timeline of what happened. And they're recording mm-hmm. that because they need to get paid. And then they're sending that to the cloud. So the operator, the oil company is dealing with six different timelines that do not properly correlate. They might overlap. They might have gaps. And nothing right. works out. Yeah. And so if you're trying to do analytics on that to figure out how you can like improve your operations, you, yeah, it's 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 a mess. It's a mess. And um, yeah. you know, some of our some of the other products in the market right now that were around before we got here, uh, we're just trying to fix that in the cloud, offering analytics, um, mm-hmm. and uh, they were smoothing over a lot of that data as part of their service, thinking that was the right thing to do, but mm-hmm. that is actually making the problem worse. Because now we can't figure out why we're inefficient. It just looks like everything's going <laughs> hunky dory because we've right. smoothed over all our problems. Right, um, but yeah. in reality, they're still they still exist on the path. Sure, sure. Yeah. So the the so, data so, the data portion is equally as big in terms of cost recovery for a lot of these players. Yeah. So I was actually when you were describing that, I was going to ask about um, about the data the data capture because a uh, huge a huge. I mean, there's a huge emphasis on that now. Everybody wants to be able to collect data from everything that's happening in every operation and get it in the cloud and analyze it and pump it into digital twins and and uh, do mm-hmm. and do AI and machine learning. And so, if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is um, that by 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 unifying, I guess maybe is the right word, all of these. Um, these various operations out there that uh, you're turning that all into one single integrated data source. Is that what's happening? Yeah. So there's a really important nuance here. So yes, that's what we're doing. But if you just unify all those, all those data sources in the cloud, you end up with all those problems, right? It's actually on premises. You need to do something to change the way that data is collected. And that was the big hurdle for the industry for a long time. Right. And it boils down to the fact that you have six companies with six six different companies with six different timelines that aren't congruent. And so all the raw data that you're using to analyze to try to look at a million different things on that pad, the context is all wrong. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Right. And that's the key. Yeah. And so I don't know why, I guess, I just no one looked at it from an outside the box thing. I mean, I was a drilling guy and I just came in and said, look, the problem here is we need to establish a central master control system the heart of that central master control system cannot just be cloud-based. It has to be on-premises and it needs to generate one congruent timeline for this whole pad that's relevant to everyone, but is also unbiased. And the obvious way I could see to do that was to digitize the fractures that are in the middle of the pad, all the valves. We can track Mm -hmm. who's doing what by tracking the sensors on those trees. So we just track the workflow of the entire pad and then we share that and use that as a format, then we use an edge device, connect all the services on premises, bring all their raw data in, and we place mm-hmm. it into the format that was generated by the computer, tracking one second accurate workflow for the entire pad. Voila, 
now your problem's solved. Uh, yeah, that's very cool. I mean, sure. I mean, if you're if you're controlling if you're, if you're controlling all the processes, then you can produce uh, data along a single timeline, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. that does kind of uh, <laughs> it does seem like the obvious answer. So yeah. Um, but this okay so the skeptic in me though is going to say all right so that all sounds really really great but um it can't it has to be non-trivial to just to walk into this environment where you got six different service companies operating six six different like categories of of equipment in these complex operations and you're just going to come in and like drop your stuff in there hook it up and like voila it works like what's the what's (laughs) how much how much time and money and pain do i have to go through to actually get your your magic applied to the to what's happening years and years and tens of millions so you are 100 percent right (laughs) Yeah, that's a, that's a starting point anyway. <laughs> yeah, start there. <laughs> it is not not for the faint of heart. And I think probably the, the saving grace here of why we're here, and this is like, it literally is, I mean, aside from the master control system on-prem that the SmartPad is, it's a platform right. in the cloud, a lot like Amazon did for e-commerce. We're just providing yeah. a place for everyone to meet in the middle, connect and share in a rising tide lifts all ships technology. Right. So the features go through the roof. The cost comes down. Everyone shares. We all participate and it standardizes it for the industry. Now we all have a common place to hook up and run that. I don't know that we understood how much work and money that was going to take when we started for five, five years ago. (laughs) And it's probably our stupidity that is our saving grace. Yeah. Right. Right. Sure. Well, sure. Uh, It's it's always when you when you're about to do something that's going to be really painful, it's always best if you don't know how painful it's going to be going into. That's it. right. It's, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's you don't know how bad the belly flop's going to hurt before you jump off. Yeah, the that is always the best scenario. So, um, um, so, but you know, so you can come in. So, so, where, so, where, so, what are we saying? Are we saying it? Have you got have you got it ironed out? Is it have you have you got it down to? Because we know we, at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about people wanting to see you know very quick uh, time to value mm-hmm. on things. So, how do you how do you, how are you bringing this in to your customers and uh, satisfying those objectives? Yeah, yeah, we're we're well on the way. You're just here not. Too. You're not. Yeah, you're not. <laughs> like, yeah. We're not too. <laughs> yeah. No, no, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, th- this year has been really good for us. We have some really big backing coming in right now from some super majors that I can't mention yet until we're done. Um, but sure. we do have a lot of partners in the industry already. Uh, some of the super major service companies, we work with a ton of them, uh, even right up, you know, the big guys like Technique, FMC, they're really good partners, really good clients, right. EQT, BP, and, you know, Birchcliffe and Paramount and Repsol. We have you know, 15 or 20 different operator clients now uh, coming on. Uh, a bunch of different operators trying it now from the, the Oxys and the um, the guys like that, the, um, the CHKs, the Chesapeake's. So a lot of these guys are coming around to that an industry standard is what benefits everybody. And mm-hmm. they're really focused on one, operational automation, and two, data standardization so that they don't have to have as many people trying to manage this data. And three... Yeah that they get the correct data that they've never had so that they can dramatically increase the efficiency of their operations. So yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's been a push that we've got enough service companies from on, on the frac side, uh, partners on wireline, on coil, on pump down and oil company. We've actually put a group together called the, the CFAC. So mm-hmm. it's the Co- mm-hmm. coalition for fully autonomous completions. And now we're, that's just a recognized group that we're pushing out into the market to say, if you've connected with us, and, and connected your protocol and have standard data connect ability, then you're now gonna get a CFAC certification and you're part of our group that you can show up on any pad anywhere in the States and just plug in and get ready for automation. And so that's, that's how fantastic. we're kind of trying yeah, to wrangle it. That, that is, uh, that's amazing. And I'm actually, I'm glad to hear you say that you're friends with Technip FMC because the friend that I mentioned with the Frankenstein comment is actually from Technip FMC and he's a great, he's a big fan of the show. I know he's going to listen to this episode. So I'm, I'm glad I did. I'm glad, I'm glad great, you guys are Great friends. guys, great partners. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but that was what I was thinking about, right? Which is that some of the, like you look at what they're doing and they've got some, like with some of their new, like fully integrated ecosystems, right? I complete and I production. They have mm-hmm. some amazing capabilities where everything is integrated and they have a high degree of automation um 
Um, so, uh, but, but you know, what it, it, it's going to be a long time or, or maybe never before everybody who's operating a frag pad has a fully integrated end to end ecosystem, right from the wellhead to the supply line. I mean, the, like the Frankenstein scenario is going to be around for a while. Right. I, I think. Well, so that's a really, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a great sales pitch for us. So the Frankenstein issue that they talk about, that is the problem. Yeah. Our, we are the Frankenstein solution. We, we un-Frankenstein it. So our whole product is built to come in the middle of all of these different companies. The reason why he says Frankenstein is because everyone has a different format. Everyone has a different timestamp. So everything right. we talked about, that's what he means when he says Frankenstein. And sure. we standardized by just capturing that timestamp of the pad itself. So that's your format. And then we manage the protocol connection in, in our central master control system. So now we work very closely with iComplete on a lot of pads and um, and a lot of other you know vendors too as well. But iComplete guys especially have been great to work with because their automated control system connects directly with ours. And now we can connect them to the pressure pumpers and the wireline units. So it's actually solving the Sure. Oh, yeah, right. Because you're actually going – yeah, because it's, it's not – because you're going beyond that particular ecosystem into all the other – all the other uh, operations. Yeah. That so now, is, uh, now cool. FMC doesn't have to try to, or any service company doesn't have to try to develop a hundred different ways to connect to a hundred different companies. They just hit the standard platform where everyone else is coming and you've solved Frankenstein. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's uh, that is fantastic. So, so um, I don't even know. I don't even know what to say after that. That's, well, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a great it's segue. Really I got to remember that. I'm going to keep using the Frankenstein thing. That Frank's, I don't get like it's like I don't know. Yeah, um, I mean that is a great story. I think that um, and and so this so the kind of this consortium approach that you're taking is interesting as well. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, you probably don't want to call it. A, it was just the first word that popped into my mind. Um, um, this industry has had you know decades of consortiums that didn't always produce a lot of things. So whatever we want yeah. to call it now, but there is. Uh, there's definitely an appetite. I mean, we see this, this comes up on, on this show a lot where, um, the desire to work together across companies and across business units and, and, um, and, and, and really, you know, begin to understand what do we have that is truly our competitive advantage and where, and what do we have that we can really like collaborate with other people and you know sort of a better together like you know make the whole industry better there's much more openness to that now i think than than even there was just a few years ago um yeah well yeah yeah absolutely it wasn't a question i just (laughs) just a statement (laughs) yeah yeah i think i think you're 100 percent right (laughs) and it's it's driven i'm gonna try to say uh, some more things that you think that you think i'm right but um (laughs) I mean, this yeah, is just so, the, nature, the nature of the beast, right? <laughs> the, the industry we went through for the last few years, it absolutely decimated everybody. And so it, the one of the biggest problems that created the Frankenstein is um, in completions is it's a, a lot of uh, all the companies thought, you know, my best route forward here is to create a competitive advantage with a very unique product. And right, so what happens right. is you end up with these fra- these pads where oil companies need an operation done, but they have six companies with very unique products that were never considered to work together. And so the operation suffers and there's a lot of waste and inefficiency. And so what we're moving to now, everybody gets wiped, just flattened. The the consolidation, the great consolidation of 2020 happens, right? And when that happens, what happens is it, it moves away from the old guard because a lot of these companies now are a blend of two companies. And when M&A work like that happens, these companies are now largely being read, led by their shareholders and their board of directors saying, we need to change. We just yep, spent yep. all that money, find a new way to do this. And so the new attitude is in place. The old battle wounds are still fresh. And we come out with this saying, how do we work together to solve this problem and all profit for whoever's left? Right? Sure. Yeah. It's... Um... Right, because because at this point we're saving, you know, to a certain degree, you're saving the industry, right? Not not because you're not saving the industry because people don't need hydrocarbons anymore, but because of all those things you said, everybody got everybody just got crushed, and um, and now we need to figure out, you know, we we talk about individual companies 
and their efforts for digital transformation. But really, it's like the like the whole industry needs to transform in a lot of ways, um, the way that, uh, the way that we're working and, you know, you, uh, you come out of that on the other side. Now everybody is able to, to take their particular competitive advantage or whatever it is that they do best or whatever their secret sauce is. And, and you have a better foundation to build on. I mean, at least in theory, that's the way I think, um, the, the way it should work. I think, yeah, 100%. It's just one of those things that you needed to find a wholesale shift for the entire industry and then reestablish for the entire industry and then find your competitive advantages again from there. You can't just keep doing what you've always been doing and hope that that changes and moves the needle because it won't. And so what happened here, what's happening now with, with stuff like us and a lot of other tech companies is we're bringing in a platform that standardizes same exact model in other industries that worked and transformed those ones has just found a new application here. Amazon came in and totally flipped commerce on its head. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, right. and now we can all get way more products, way faster, way cheaper. How do they do free shipping? Because there's just a model that shares so much efficiency between all these companies. There's more money to go around at a different level. And yep, then yep. when people get on Amazon, then they find how to run their store better. They find how to expand to multiple stores. They find how to take over the Amazon space. And so in completions right now, this is where all the operators are focused. They're not really f- as focused on drilling. It's all on completions. This is like 55% right, of right. their AFE. And so they look at it and they say, here comes this new automation platform. We can, And this is all of us driving the platform. This isn't Coldboard. This is the industry driving automation platform, participating together. And that's the way the industry is going to go because that's the way every other industry has gone. And now let's yeah. figure out how to be the best at automation. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good observation, and um, and it does a lot of other good things for us, right? It does a lot for for safety for people and and uh, and sustainability and all those things that we care about now um, that we supposedly didn't care about before, even though we did care about them before. But that's right. now we now now we care about them even more. So that's yeah. good. So um, I'm 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 looking at the little time clock ticking here. We're kind of getting to that point where. Although, you know, I usually say like, I would love to talk about this all day, but really I never mean it when I say that. Um, but, but actually, but actually in this case, it would be fun to talk about this some more. It might be fun to come back and do, uh, and maybe do another episode, uh, you know, in the near future and see how things are progressing, particularly with this, uh, um, this, this, uh, I don't know, what, what did you call it? This, the, you had an acronym for like the consortium thing, like the, all the, the group groups working oh, together. Yeah. CFAC. So this is a brand new thing we're just putting out. Um, but yeah, CFAC coalition for fully autonomous completions. Coalition. Includes, there you go. I like that. Yeah. includes, uh, a lot of our big operator partners. I won't out them yet, but they're some of the big names that we're working with. And then a lot of the big service companies as well. Um, recognizing that we all want to move to this platform. So once all that becomes public, it would be great to come back and have uh, and do another episode and see and see what kind of exciting things everybody has in mind and where that's going. We'd love to. We'd love to. Yeah, that'd be great. So so all right. So we'll wrap it up here for today. Congratulations, by the way. Uh, it's a great story about um, uh, how you got how you got to where you are and. Uh, um, Thank you. And I mean, it, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like you got exactly the right thing in the right place at, at the right time, which is always what those private equity companies are looking for, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just started it seven years ago and happened to be at the exact right place at the right time after three recessions yeah. and a pandemic. Yeah, nailed it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so, yeah. It, all yeah. about persistence. In, in the words of uh, Hannibal, I love it when a plan comes together. So, yeah. <laughs> um, very good. Well, that is going to wrap it up for today. If people want to, uh, I got a few more things I got to say when we're done here, but um, if people want to learn more about what you're doing, obviously we'll put your website, Colbor website in the show notes. Um, you mentioned CFAC. Is there anything online that's got information about that or is that coming uh, coming soon? So, soon to be published. Yeah. We're soon just uh, getting the founding group together and getting approvals between all the oil companies and service companies. Okay, cool. So maybe we'll, we'll hear about that next time. Anything else that you want to uh, point people to in terms of learning more about any of this stuff? Uh, we've got a YouTube channel uh, that we try and publish on fairly regularly. Um, okay. And then, um, yeah, just websites and uh, um, Instagram, LinkedIn, stuff like that. we got coldboretechnology.com on all of those. And, and I know you said you, you, you've, you've done a few podcasts 
Um, I'm sure none of them were as good as this one, but you know, in the <laughs> event that somebody wants to hear you talk some more, they can probably search for you and find you out there on a, on a few podcasts, right? Uh, talking about this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. A bunch of them. And then there's some other ones with our partners, EQT, a great operating partner of ours. They just did one recently okay. about fully autonomous completion. So you bet lots of stuff. Perfect. All right. Thank you, sir. Brett Shell, Cold Board Technology. Really appreciate you making time today. I hope it warms up for you up there in Calgary. Appreciate it, my man. Thanks for the time. All right, for sure. So just a couple of more things before I sign off for today. Uh, once again, thank you to our sponsor, Cognite. Uh, I'm telling you, these guys are doing some amazing things with industrial data. So if you haven't had a look, have a look. Cognite.com. Thanks to them for uh, keeping the lights on and paying the bills. Also, remember about the OGGN street team. The street team is just a fun thing. Um, if, you, if, you're not, if you don't know what the street team is, then go check out the LinkedIn group. Uh, just look for uh, OGGN street team or oil and gas global network street team. I'm, I'm sure you'll find it. Uh, it is being led by the ever sleepless and hungry Brian Mon. Uh, if you want to know why I call him that, then look up his LinkedIn profile. That's Brian with an I and M-A-H-N is his last name, and he is leading the street team to great and wonderful things. It's a great way to get involved. Uh, you do stuff for OGGN, you do stuff for the industry, and uh, and you get out from behind those never-ending Zoom calls. You can also connect with OGGN on our website, which coincidentally is OGGN.com. Or you can connect with us on all the usual social spots and you can find out about all the amazing things we have going on because we do have amazing things going on. We got new podcasts, as I mentioned. We got new live streams. We're, we're starting to do new like live in-person events again. Go figure. And uh, so everything's coming on full full steam. So uh, have a look at OGGN.com. Get on the mailing list and uh, you can get in on the action. One last thing. If you would like to bring the magic of this podcast to your own event, imagine, imagine the excitement of your friends and neighbors when, uh, when we're doing a live podcast right there, uh, you know, for the, the family barbecue in your backyard, or of course, you know, maybe something that you're doing at work or whatever, wherever you think that you've got a, an event that just needs to be spiced up a bit. We can, I can bring this podcast. We can do any of our podcasts. Uh, these things travel, and it always is a lot of fun. People really, if, I don't know what it is, but people love uh, kind of watching us do a podcast uh, in person. So get in touch uh, in the show notes. You can, uh, you can see the contact info there and, uh, and, and let us know. That'll do it. And now the next thing that you hear will be our producer, Savannah Wilson, who will tell you about our upcoming events. Hey everybody, it's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for April 2021. This month we have three events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up we have our in-person event, which is the Spring Pitch Party focused on clean tech. It'll be hosted at the Canon on April 6th. Next, we have our two online events, the University of Houston BES Career Fair on April 8th and the CSPG GeoWomen eTalk on April 20th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com for more information about any of the live streams or events we have coming up. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for April. I hope you guys have a great month, and thanks for tuning in. Check us out next week for another entertaining and yet useful episode of Oil & Gas Tech Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.